magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. G'day everybody and welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and this episode we're going to talk about some woo-woo stuff. We're going to talk about manifesting and we're going to talk about animal communicating and we may even get into talking about coincidences and I've had plenty of those. But uh, let's start out with the manifesting part of it and I, uh, I wanted to kind of introduce manifesting on this uh, in this episode and I thought well I might just do a bit of a Google search on a definition of what is manifestation exactly and it says the one I found that was in uh, Oprah magazine it says essentially manifestation is bringing something tangible into your life through attraction and belief i.e. if you think it it will come via your thoughts your actions your beliefs and your emotions and you know I've always been I've always been lucky and I've always thought I've been lucky and it turns out that I've been doing this manifesting stuff for a while and I actually was doing it before I knew I was doing it and that's back when I just thought I was lucky. But I I have to talk about probably my first introduction to anything like this, Um, you know, because growing up where I grew up, this sort of thing would be just plain old weird, people wouldn't talk about it. My family definitely wouldn't talk about it. But uh, I think my first uh, introduction to this stuff was listening to an audio book called The Secret. And I think it was when we were living back in Australia, actually. So it would have been a CD, an audio book on CD. And I recalled uh, Drag in the Arena while I listened to it at one point in time. But it was written by an Australian lady. And what she did was she took, she looked at basically all the major religions, philosophers, philosophies, spiritual leaders, everything that they all said and she and she's try she tried to to boil it all down to the one thing that they're all saying the same what is the secret and basically the book the secret is about the power of positive thinking you know if you're religious you'd be praying if you uh you know some people just put stuff out there but it's it's about being able to manipulate what comes into your life through your thoughts and your emotions and your beliefs yeah, when I first listened to that book, I was I was I was kind of fascinated by it. Not fascinated by it like I did anything about it. It wasn't like I I I went oh, okay, I'm going to make a plan, and but it just went in, and it was it's something that that kind of must have sat quite well with me. I'd been doing it before that. I just didn't know I was doing it because that was in about oh 2008. I probably listened to that book, and then sometime after that, a few years after that, I found another book called E Squared. And E squared, uh, the subtitle is Nine Experiments That Prove the Power of Positive Thinking. And the first experiment they have you do in that book is they say, we want you to go online and give yourself a budget and a high budget. Like imagine that you had maybe a higher income than you have right now, or if you really stretched your, your budget, imagine what car you could buy if you could afford it, buy, basically mentally buy yourself a nice car, go online, look, look through all the cars, pick out the year, make, model and color of the car that you want. And for the next month, while you're driving around, I want you to keep an eye out for that car. And if you do this exercise, if you do this experiment, you'll find that 
wow, there's that car that I imagined I bought. Oh, there's that car I imagined I bought. And you, you see it every once in a while. You might see it quite a bit. And then the next part of the experiment is you go online and you give yourself a low budget. Basically, give yourself quite a low budget to where it's not a nice car you're buying. It's just an average sort of a car you're buying. And pick out the year, make, model and color of that one. And for the next month, keep an eye out for that one. And what you'll find is there's a lot of those. Lots and lots and lots of those of that year make model of the the not so nice car and the whole point they're trying to make about it is is that you didn't notice either of those cars before you're doing the experiment they were there but they didn't come up on your radar you didn't notice them you didn't give them any attention you didn't place your attention on them and what it's trying to say is that there's opportunities that come up all the time some of them are good i.e the nice car some of them are bad i.e the not nice car And if you're looking for bad experiences, there's a lot of bad experiences that will come your way. If you're looking for bad experiences or if you're looking for an old car of a certain make and model, you'll see a lot of them. If you're looking for good experiences or positive experiences or a certain thing, if your awareness is out there, it will show up on your radar. And and so it's just a, a pretty cool book and it ends up... The end, the last experiment in that book, I can't remember what it was because it's been a few years since I read it, but... They get you uh, manifesting some pretty cool sort of stuff. And so, you know, like I said, I I think I've always done this and didn't even know I was doing it. Or or maybe not always done it, but it's been, oh, a number of years now. But the, the the first time I know I actually did it was in 1990. I bought, or maybe 1989 I bought it, but I had a, a, an old F100 in Australia that I bought off a friend of mine. He was actually the best man at my wedding. And I bought it off him and I paid $5,000 for it. You know, the, sun, the the paint on it was kind of faded and had some rust in it and, you know. But the insurance company at the time, which is called the NRMA in Australia, National Roads and Motorists Association, uh, would insure that year, make and model for $10,000. So if it was, if it was a, a write-off, you would get a, a check for ten thousand dollars, and so I bought it in nineteen eighty nine. But sometime during nineteen ninety, I'd made up my mind that I really wanted to go to America. I'm well, not made up my mind because I suppose I'd really wanted to go to America for quite a long time up to that point in time. But I, I kind of like, yeah, I, I want to. I've decided I want to do this. I want to because I was working for a bank at the time, and they would give you twelve months leave without what they call leave without pay, which means you can uh, take 12 months off if you're young and want to travel or whatever and then when you come back they will give you a job it won't necessarily be in the same town you were living in but they'll give you a job and that opportunity was there and so I kind of like you know what I really would like to go to America but I can't really afford to but if I could write this truck off without killing myself I'd do it because if I could write this truck off without killing myself, I would take that $10,000 and I'd use it to go to America to learn how to train reining horses. And I said that, as far as I can remember, I said it on one occasion each to three different people. I just said, I you know, wish I could write this, I wish I knew how to write this truck off without killing myself because if I could do that, I'd take the money and go to America. And it was probably maybe a couple of months later I'm driving along a two-lane road in Australia, country road in Australia, paved road, 
And I was going about 125 kilometers an hour, maybe 70 miles an hour. And I blew a left front tire, which is your passenger side tire in Australia. And I went off the road into a small stand of gum trees, eucalyptus trees. If it had been one big eucalyptus tree, it probably would have wrote the truck off and wrote me off. And if it had been a, one small gum tree, it probably would have damaged the truck, but not wrote it off. But as it, was, as it was, I was going at the right speed, blow a front tire, go off the road into a small stand of gum trees and wrote the truck off. And I opened the door and stepped out. And there's not a scratch on me. I walked away from it, but the truck was a write-off. And so I, um, I took that $10,000 and I went to America. And that was basically the start of, I don't know, the rest of my life. You know, before that, I was a, kind of a bit of an aimless wanderer. Yeah, that, so that's the first time I remember doing it. Um, probably the, the second one that I can think of that, that really sticks out was in 2001 or two, maybe 2002, I think. I uh, had a horse in training, a reining horse in training that I, I hauled for what they call a world title. So in the National Reining Horse Association, the, in all the divisions, the high money winner for the year, at the end of the year, is declared the world champion. And I, I was showing in the limited open at the time, and we hauled all over the countryside or from one coast to another in the US uh, going to shows and ended up reserve world champion on this horse. And my son, Tyler, at the time was in kindergarten and we homeschooled him because we were, we were traveling all over the countryside. And then that was 2002, 2003, my wife, so another client of mine decided he wanted his stallion to do that. And so my wife, Robin, she was hauling for a world title. And sometimes I stayed home, sometimes I went on the road with her, but Tyler was now in regular school. He, well, we weren't homeschooling him. And I really got to thinking, you know what, it's, this whole horse training thing and showing horses and stuff, when the better you get at it, the more time you're going to be on the road away from your family and your kids, you know, away from your kids or your kids can't be in school. I mean, it's, so I got to think, and I'm not sure this is the life we really want for Tyler. And halfway through the year, I actually, Robin and Tyler and I flew back to Australia, to my hometown. I'm from a small country town in New South Wales called Young. My family still lives there. My two older brothers are there. I've got two older brothers. They both live there. Mum and dad live there. And we went back there for a week in the middle of, it was in the middle of winter in Australia. It was probably June or July. And we went back there for a week and I looked into seeing if I could get a Subway sandwich franchise in Young. Because we were thinking, you know what, we could probably, you know, take our money, go home, invest in this business and get out of the horse thing, but just, you know, be home all the time so that Tyler has more of a normal life. And this is where I think the universe provides where you need stuff and it doesn't provide where you don't need it. But we got back there. I made inquiries with, um, with uh, Subway Australia and they got back to me and they said, well, that franchise has been available forever, but someone just picked the franchise up last week, so it's not available. And so we, we came back to uh, America and just went back to doing what we're doing. And later that year in uh, 2003, Robin was at a big, big, big show way on the other side of the country in Columbus, Ohio, called the All-American Quarter Horse Congress. It's a huge, big show. They probably have, I don't know, two or 3,000 horses there at this show. And she was showing back there, and I had a client at the time, and 
this guy, well, the client was the wife, but her husband, he was one of the biggest headhunters in Silicon Valley at the time. Uh, so if you don't know what a headhunter is, it's an, he was a, his official position was an IT executive recruiter. So he, um, what he does is he tries, you know, you have a company and you need some sort of executive for it. That guy's already got a job. He's not jobless. And so you've got to try to recruit people from other companies. And so they call him a headhunter. He's actually a bit of um, trivia. He's the guy that introduced Tim Cook to Steve Jobs. So back in the day, uh, when Tim, uh, when Steve Jobs was looking for a replacement at Apple, this guy said to Steve Jobs, "Hey, uh, I know this guy Tim Cook, and I think he might be someone you need to meet." So that's a bit of a moment in history there. But uh, anyway, so he called me up while Robin was in Columbus, Ohio, back there showing at the Congress, and uh, he rang me up and he said, "Hey." You know, we've built, they'd built a really fancy facility, probably an hour from where we were, 45 minutes from where we were. And he rang me up and he said, you know, my wife is looking for, um, oh, well, he said, he didn't say my, he said, do you know anybody who's an older horse trainer who's kind of getting out of it, who kind of wants a retirement sort of a job? And I said, well, what are you, what are you thinking of? And he said, well, my wife's wanting to have someone here to train horses for us privately. And so she, you know, I just want to know, do you know anyone who's, who's kind of an older guy who wants to kind of slow down a bit and could come and, and work for us and train horses for us privately and give my wife and daughter lessons? And, and I said, you know what, because his wife is very detailed and knows what she likes and what she doesn't like, and I know exactly what she likes. And, you know, I said to him, I really don't know if you're going to find a person like that because... I think anybody who's old and retired is not of the level of quality trainer that your wife would be looking for. And anybody who is the level of quality trainer that your wife's looking for is probably not looking for the job. And he said, oh, okay, well, just, just keep an eye out if you, if you, um, you know, if you kind of hear somebody, just let us know. And I'm like, okay. So I got off the phone with him. And after I got off the phone with him, I got to thinking, well, hell, maybe I can do that. Maybe this is the opportunity I've been looking for. So I called Robin in at the Congress and uh, told her about it and said, what do you think? She says, call him back. And so I rang him back and I said, hey, you know what? I was actually, I was just thinking about it. I've actually been thinking about maybe doing something like that. And so we ended up coming to an agreement. So I went to work for them the next year. We worked, I worked for them for three years, 2004, 2005 and 2006. And it was basically a nine-to-five job training really good horses in a very, very, very fancy, fancy facility. And, you know, I could set my own hours. And so I would uh, take Tyler to school, drop him off at school at whatever time it was, and I'd go to work. And then I think primary school or grade school, I think they call it in America, get off pretty early, like 2 o'clock. So I'd go in, drive back into town at 2 o'clock, pick him up, bring him back out to the ranch, and I'd finish my day. And, you know, Tyler would hang out with me. He'd ride the quad. He had a BB gun. He'd shoot little targets, and he'd explore all over the place. The ranch was, you know, 75 acres or something like that, and he had the run of it. So we spent three years where basically, I, you know, I wasn't going to many horse shows. They, they showed a little bit, but not a lot. And so I was home every weekend. I'd I dropped Tyler off at school every morning. I picked him up from school every afternoon and he spent the rest of the afternoon with me. Looking back at that, I realized, you know what, I put that out there. That, you know, that whole trip to Australia 
with the looking to buy the subway thing, that was part of it. You know, I, I told the universe, I'm serious about this. I'm actually looking for maybe a different way of going about life so that it's it's not so, you know, fragmented and, you know, we're not gone all the time and it's a little more structured and a little more consistent. And uh, the universe provided. And uh, so after, well, we worked for them for three years and after about two and a half years, they decided they actually wanted to move to another state. And so we had to decide to do something else. And that's when we moved to Australia. We moved back to Australia at the end of 2006 and we're there for four years. And when we moved back to the US at the end of 2010, um, you know, I started training horses all over again and I started, uh, you know, I started doing YouTube videos and I'd been doing clinics and things like that. But what was interesting was after a couple of years, so this is the next time that I know I manifested something after a couple of years, you know, my YouTube channel was going quite well and, and I was kind of getting the message out there, probably about four years, I imagine. But I, I kind of put it out there and thought, you know what, I want, I want somebody with a bigger reach, somebody with you know, a much bigger audience than I've got to approach me to do something with what I'm doing. You know, I just kind of, I was pretty vague, but I wanted someone with a bigger reach. I didn't know what that was. Anyway, I don't know, two or three or four months after that, I got contacted by uh, two producers from LA who wanted to do a reality show on me or with me in it featuring me and I tell you what that that's an interesting phone call when you get that one um yeah I tell you what your head starts to swell just a little bit I think but it, um yeah it's an interesting phone call to get when you get that one but I, I, I said sure you know this is this is the opportunity this is the get the message out there and they came up and they filmed what they call a sizzle reel so they come up and film for a couple of days and what they're going to do with this couple of days worth of footage is condense it all into five minutes of boom, boom, boom. And then they were going to try to sell it to a network, you know, uh, National Geographic or Animal Planet were the first ones. I think they were thinking they were going to try to market this stuff too. And so they, they made this sizzle reel and they they send me each iteration of it. You know, they did the sizzle reel and they sent it. I said, well, I don't really like this thing or what about changing this or blah, blah, blah. And it went back and forth and there was probably about 10 different iterations of this sizzle reel. And... In the and I was looking at what they changed from the last one. You know, I kind of got into, I kind of got tunnel vision about not looking at the whole picture, but looking at what they changed from one one scissor reel to another one. And and after about the tenth one, I, they were finally happy with it. And so I took it around to a friend of mine. I said, "What do you?" He's actually an Australian too. Lives here. I took it around and I showed it to him. And I said, "So what do you think of this?" And he looked at it and he goes, "I hate it." And I said, well, why do you hate it? And he goes, because it's not you. They're portraying you as someone you are not. And, I, and I'm like, oh, damn, they are too. I didn't even notice it because I was, I was more looking at the change from the last iteration of the sizzle reel more than the whole context of the whole thing. And that's when I realized all they wanted was drama. And if you wanted to, if, you know, if you wanted to go to the clinics and get the real human backstory on people and their horses and stuff you could create an, some amazing personal drama without making making drama but what they actually told me they would do if this thing took off is they say what we do we have people that we put out we put out ads for 
for people that are having problems with their horses, but they would put certain keywords in the ads that tends to attract people who are having personal problems so they can, you know, manipulate that. And, I, and I, you know, I was just a bit wrapped up in the whole, hey, we're doing a reality show thing at the time to, to realise it. But this friend of mine, you know, he said, yeah, it's, it's, it's not you. And so I had to ring him up and say, um, you know what, sorry to put you through all this bother, but, you know, you came up, you filmed, you've been doing all this scissor reel editing and stuff, but I'm not interested in in the in the way it, it's set up i'm, I'm going to walk away but it, the the process was quite interesting doing it and the, like the camera guys that filmed it they were really cool one of them i said so are you a camera guy all the time that's what you do he goes no i do a little bit of acting too and i said oh really have you ever ever acted in anything i would have seen he goes uh well maybe he said i was monica's boyfriend on friends <laughs> i'm like Okay, so he was a. There was a, at some point in time, Monica had a boyfriend on on Friends, and uh, anyway, yeah, he was Monica's boyfriend on Friends, and the other guy was a camera guy, and he says mostly I work on um, music videos. And I said, oh, really? Like anybody famous? He goes, oh, well, the last one I did last week was for Mumford and Sons. I'm like, oh, okay, that's 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 pretty cool. And so, yeah, so that whole, that whole thing there was, was another manifestation I put out there that I wanted to get the message I had to a, to a bigger audience and needed someone who could do that for me. But anyway, that, that thought's still out there because I walked away from that one because I just didn't like the way it was heading. And so those are two, you know, the, the F100 story, the, you know, the Subway sandwich or the going to work for those, those clients of mine for those three years. And the the reality TV show, they're all things that I manifested. They're all things that I put out there in the in the world. And I've got a really good friend of mine from Wales who's um, very woo-woo. Uh, her name's Kathy Price. I should actually get her on the podcast one time. She is fascinating. But she has a saying about um, manifesting. I, mean, I don't think she refers to it as manifesting, but she says, you know, in order to get stuff, you've got to... And she says you have intention, attention, no tension. So intention is the putting it out there, the the mentally putting it out there. Attention is paying attention to the opportunities that arise because of of the intention. But the no tension part is you can't be like, well, when is it going to happen? Why hasn't it happened yet? You cannot, you cannot do that and have it happen. You, you, you've got to, like in The Secret, the book The Secret, I remember them saying that it's just like when you put something out there, it's like you ordered it online and you pressed click and you know it's coming. You know, like, I wonder if it's going to come. I wonder if it's ever going to come. I'm like, you know it's coming. I've ordered it. It's going to show up. I've just got to wait and whoop, one day it'll be there. And so Kathy's deal, intention, attention, no tension. You know, if you think about the, the E squared book and that experiment, the intention. You put it out there and I want a 2015 BMW 328i is what I want, a red one. Put that out there and then you keep an eye out for those. So you, you keep it in your mind and you keep your attention on the fact you might see one. When you see it, you go, oh, there it is. But you're not driving along the road going, where are they? Oh, I don't see any cars. It's not going to happen. I don't see the cars. So it's there's a real balance, I believe, between the intent, the attention, and the no tension part, and I think that's, I think that's where a lot of people struggle with it. Is they want it to happen too bad, like they 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 they've got an emotion about it not happening. Why hasn't happened? And 
you know, they get a bit needy about it. And I think that's where my, you know, my depression and the the level of apathy that comes along with depression, I think that's actually helped me because I've had no tension. It's like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's you put it out there, but I'm not really like, come on, when's it going to happen? I don't have all that, that tension in there. And then probably the most recent one, then it just happened last year, like major one, I'm sure they happen all the time, but big one is um, I had done, you know, I've done clinics, you know, I've done clinics or and or presented at horse expos in quite a few countries, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the US, uh, all, uh, all the UK, so England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, uh, all over Western Europe, so Belgium, Holland, Germany, Switzerland, France, Spain, Kenya, and South Africa. And so I've been some pretty cool places, uh, all because the horses took me there. You know, people wanted me to go there and, and either present at a horse expo or go there and do clinics. And so last year, early last year, I kind of thought, you know what, I've been some pretty cool places, but I, I, I want to get asked to go somewhere that's kind of exotic, like, like unlike anywhere I've ever been before. And I just kind of put it out there and left it. I didn't, I wasn't dwelling on it. I just one day I just put that, that thought out there. Almost like the F100. I said it three times and that's it. But I put that thought out there. I want to go somewhere exotic. I want to have someone from, someone invite me to go somewhere exotic. And about mm, two, three months later, maybe, I had a, a call from the wife of the British ambassador to Morocco. And he asked, she asked me, would I like to come to Morocco and do some work for the, it's called the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Horses. And it's actually a government department that falls under the Department of Agriculture. And she wanted me to to come over there and do some work with these horses for this government department. And I'm like, hell yeah. So we ended up last year, we went to Morocco for a week. Rob and, and Tyler both came with me and we stayed in the, in the British ambassador's residence. So we, you know, you have the, you have the, um, you know, the Range Rover with the diplomatic plates with the driver who's obviously ex-special forces or something or other. And, you know, there's there's three types of security outside that when you pull up to the ambassador's residence, there's three types of security outside. There is embassy security. There is uh, federal security that the, the, the Moroccan government provides to protect the ambassador's residence. And then there's private security as well. And, you know, they, they do the whole bomb check, put the mirror under the car, the whole bit. Uh, yeah, we got to. We spent an amazing week in Morocco last year, working with those horses. Uh, working with the we the, all the horses I ended up working with for the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Horses were Barb Stallions. So the the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Horses is really about promoting the Barb breed, and the Barb is one of the ancestors of the quarter horse. Uh, the breed's about three thousand years old from that Iberian Peninsula area. And all the ones I worked with were all stallions, and it was, it was pretty amazing. Uh, we got to do some, some amazing stuff. I got to meet the prince one day. The, the prince is actually the head. Of, he heads, or one of the princes. There's a number of princes there in Morocco, but he's. Um, we got to meet one of the princes one day, and, and he um, he'd actually he actually sought me sought us out. We were at, uh, we were at a big place, and I was working with some horses, and he actually drove up in a golf cart and got out, and he was. He's kind of dressed in gym clothes. He was going to work out, but he came over and said that he, he'd heard 
about this guy that had been working with these Barb Stones for the last two days and wanted to come meet me. So that was pretty crazy, meeting the prince. He is a very, very, very cool dude. Didn't, you know, not what I thought of as a Moroccan prince because he had, you know, tennis shoes on and shorts and a T-shirt and a a do-rag on his head because he was going to work out. But, yeah, that was pretty cool getting to meet the prince. And probably the highlight of the whole thing was we went to a, a thing one day called the the Tiberita. And the Tiberita is a um, – the event itself is actually a UNESCO World Heritage listed cultural event. It's a sport, sport they do in Morocco, and it consists of a team of 15 horses on horseback, um, all dressed in traditional Arabic garb, and each one of them has got a big muzzle-loading rifle. And what they do is they charge down an area about the size of a polo field, 15 abreast, and they start out in a canter, and they get up into a faster gallop, and then they get up into a flat gallop, and they're running flat gallop, and then they take their big muzzle-loading rifles and point them up towards the sky and then swing them around in a ceremonial sort of a fashion, and then boom, they let them all off at the same time, and then they come to a halt in a line. And so we went to this, we went with the um, ambassador and his wife one day, went down to this Tiberita festival. And it was the most surreal sight I've ever seen. There were a thousand stallions at this thing. They only ride stallions. And there's a thousand stallions, every single one of them. And they're all under saddle, all ridden, all all in the same place at the same time. And every horse has got traditional Arabic garb on, you know, the big, all the, the stuff hanging off them. And the, the riders are dressed in you know, traditional Arabic garb, and each one of them is carrying his big muzzle-loading rifle. That's If you get up close to them and have a look at them, it's all this engraved silver on there. It's just, they're absolutely amazing. But this sight of a thousand stallions all in one place and one time, all dressed up, it's, it's a um, one of those pictures you have in your head that you just, you will never, ever forget. It was, it was pretty amazing. You know, that was the thing about that trip to, to Morocco too. It's one of those experiences you cannot buy. Okay, you cannot buy that experience. You can't say, okay, how much is it going to cost me to go and stay with the British ambassador in the ambassador's residence in Morocco and get taken to this thing? And, you know, because we, when we went to the Tiberita, we were the, you know, we were with the, the ambassador. And so we actually got, we get out and we get surrounded by these, you know, there's two guys with cameras and there's a, and there's a video camera and they're videoing us. And we meet this big gentleman in a suit and it turned out he, he didn't speak English, he only spoke Arabic, I think. It turned out he was like the governor or something of the area. So we get trained and we get moved over and we sit with him in the front row in this big tent watching this whole Tiberia thing. And then partway through it, we get taken around and, and just shown that we just get the guided tour of the whole the whole thing, and you just cannot say, "Yeah, hook me up with the governor of the area in Morocco and take us to this thing and show us everything." Um, oh, one day we went to the went to the horse races at Casablanca, and, and the same thing happened there. We got you know we got taken up into the owner's suite. We went up into the announcer's box while they were calling a race. We went down into the the like the drug stewards area and watched them you know get the horse to pee in the cup, and they were testing it. We went in the um, the TV van. The one that has you know fifteen screens, you got the sound guy because it's tele the the the, the race is a telecast, so we got a tour of that. Got to meet this racehorse trainer and and go upstairs with him and watch the last race of the day. Oh, actually, go downstairs to the starting thing and and meet his horse before it races, and then we go up to the the, the viewing area and watch the race and his horse wins. So then we get to go down to the winners' circle and get our picture taken 
with this horse that just won the horse race at Casablanca. So it was, yeah, it was just an amazing, amazing experience that we're all very grateful for. And, and it all came about because one day I had this crazy idea. Hey, I want someone to contact me from somewhere exotic and ask me to go somewhere unlike I've ever been before. So, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in manifesting. I'm a big believer in the power of thought. I'm a big believer in putting stuff out there and 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 I think the the key to it like I said before is is the belief part. You've got to believe it's going to happen. You can't just hope it happens. Hope doesn't work. Belief works. And I think the belief is the part that allows you to have the no tension. If you have tension about it, then you're not believing. You're just hoping it's going to work. It's, it's, I really believe the, the belief is a big part of it. And I've, you know, like I said at the very beginning, I, I've always been lucky, but I think I've always just had this belief that things were going to turn out all right for me. So, so that's, you know, that's a bit about manifesting and that, that might sound a bit woo woo for you. So, Hopefully I've got you all prepared now for the next thing we're going to talk about, which is probably a little bit more woo-woo, and that is about animal communicators. Uh, you know, years ago I never would have, you know, if you'd have told me you used an animal communicator, I would have thought you're an idiot. When I first, the first year I came to America, and I met my wife Robin at the time, but uh, she ran like a scalded cat. I chased her all year. I was kind of stuck in the friend zone, so I went back. I went back to Australia for six months, and then ended up coming back, but. Before I went back to Australia, Robin and I went down to the Monterey County Fair, which is, if you've ever heard of Monterey, California, the Monterey Bay, um, it was down there, which is about 45 minutes south of where we are now. And we went to the fair. It was the last weekend I was going to be in America. Tuesday, I'm flying back to Australia, probably never coming back again as far as I know. I mean, I have no plans to come back yet. And when I first met Robin, she told me that she went to a fortune teller one time who told her she was going to marry someone from another country. And, you know, I kind of took that with a bit of a grain of salt. And so Robin and I go to this Monterey County Fair. And while we walk around the fair, she looks up and way over there in the distance, there's this tent. And she goes, that over there, that's the gypsy fortune teller that told me I was going to marry someone from another country. You should go over and get your fortune, your palm read. I think she was a, a psychic palm reader is what she was, actually. That's what she advertised herself as. And I thought, well, this is all crap, you know. Obviously, they, you know, they just pick up and stuff. So I'm, I'm going to go over there, but I'm not going to give her any ammunition. I'm going to give her any information. I'm not going to speak because if I speak, she'll pick up the accent and then she can just throw all sorts of stuff in there. So okay, okay, and I look at my clothing to make sure I don't have a T-shirt that says Australia or anything like that on it, but I've, I've got pretty generic sort of clothing on and I take some cash out of my wallet and stick it in my pocket so I don't have to pull my wallet out so in case she sees anything distinctive there that might give the game away so i walk over to her and she's sitting there in the front of this tent and she's a you know dark skinned uh you know olive complected curly ringlet sort of hair you know just like you'd think it if you're watching a movie that had a gypsy fortune teller in it that's what she looked like and i walked up and i look at her and she says you would like her eating and i nodded so i didn't say anything i nodded and she says is Fifteen dollars for one hand and twenty dollars for two hands, and so I just turned both my hands over so she could see my palm sort of thing. And she goes, "Come with me." And so we go inside the tent, and I just sit down, and she starts looking at my hands, and she goes, "Oh, I see you're going to live a long and fruitful life." And I'm thinking, "Yeah, I've heard this before, you know." 
see this in every movie. I bet you tell this to everybody that walks in. And so she talks for quite a while, telling me all this really good stuff, which I'm not listening to because I'm sure she tells it to everybody. And then she says, I see you are about to leave America, but you must return to California. Your destiny lies in the fact you return to California. So I'm going to leave America in two days' time and possibly never return. And so when she says that, now I'm listening. And so then she goes on and tells me some other stuff. And I wish I, then I'm thinking, well, I, it's almost over now. I wish I had to listen to the first 10 minutes. Yeah, so when I left the tent there, I walked back through the crowd and found Robin and I walked up to her and she said, are you okay? You're as white as a ghost. You look like you've seen a ghost or something rather. And I'm just looking at her like, you wouldn't believe what she just told me. And so that was probably my first introduction to maybe something like that could actually could actually work. You know, when I uh, came back and I went back to work for the same trainer I'd been been working for before I before I left and here's a like a pretty big sort of a fella there was a horse I was riding there I think I actually started this horse but it was there the whole time I was there it, and a lady you know a client owned it and it was still there when I left and when I left the guy that replaced me I don't think I think he was just doing it for a job he wasn't really into it and so um, maybe a year or so later I was talking to that lady and I said oh how's Bunny Bunny was a horse and I said how's Bunny doing and she goes, oh, yeah, she's doing fine. She said, you know, I, I had an animal communicator talk to her. And right then I'm thinking, oh, you're an idiot. And I said, oh, yeah, what did the animal communicator have to say? And she said, well, it was over the phone. And she said, Bunny says I like it when the big fat man rides me. And, I, you know, the, the guy that, that I worked for was a great big fella. And... The guy that was working there that took my place wasn't probably, you know, he was only doing it for a job, which means his heart and soul wasn't really into the whole thing. And so that kind of kind of struck me a little bit like, whoa, how could she know that over the phone? That was interesting. And so I had a client a few years later, quite a few years later, tell me that um, she had used an animal communicator who was really, really good and like really spot on and, you know, pretty straight up. Well, very straight up, and it didn't seem to be any weird stuff. And I'm like, and at the time I had a horse named Albert, and I thought Albert had something that didn't work quite right. Um, Albert was a reigning horse. I thought he had something that didn't work quite right, and I thought it was in his hind end on the right side, but he wasn't lame. He didn't have a shortness of stride or anything. I just noticed from one side to the other, he really couldn't use his hind end you know, quite as well as he could one side than the other. And I, and I, you know, I'd had different vets look at it and I said, I really can't see anything. And the next, you know, thing I was probably going to have to do was what they call a nuclear scan where they inject a, a, nucle- a radioactive dye into the horses and they do this scan thing and it lights up in dark spots where there is uh, where there's pain or there's inflammation or whatever. But a nuclear scan is like two or 3,000 bucks. And I was told that this animal communicator lady was, you know, it was 300 bucks or something rather for her to come out. And so I'm like, okay, have a, I'll have her come out. And so I was telling a friend of mine in Australia about this and, and she said, well, when she comes out, find out if she can uh, do it over the phone because I'd like my horse having, I'd like to have my horse done too. So uh, I had the lady come out and she, we go in the store with Albert, she doesn't move him around or anything. And, and um, there was a lot of stuff happened that, 
that she couldn't have known that she was telling me what was going on. But the long, long story short is she eventually, in the end, I got to ask, well, is he in pain anywhere? And she says, well, he, right about there. And she put her finger on top of his hip, um, right where I thought it was, slightly on the right side, like right on top of his hip but on the right side, just off his backbone. And I said, well, what is it? Is it bone? Is it muscle? She says, well, he can't tell me that because she told me that she gets mental pictures, like she gets pictures from him. She doesn't get words or whatever, so she can only get a, a picture. And I said, uh, what is it, a muscle bone? She says, well, he can't tell me that. And I said, well, how far in is it? And she kind of holds her fingers up a couple of inches, like about that far in. I'm like, okay. I was happy. That's that's all I wanted to know was where it was. And uh, before she left, I said, hey, do you do this stuff over the phone? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, I've got a friend of mine from Australia who wants to do it. And so I paid her for my thing and I paid her for my friend in Australia. And off she went. The next day I had the vet come out and I said, don't ask me how I know, but this horse has got something wrong with him right there. And I put my finger on top of his hip just off to the right, in there about that far. If you were going to have a look at that, what could what could you do? And he said, well, I could rectally ultrasound him. And so, you know, just like you would ultrasound a mare for preg checking or accepting, instead of the ultrasound pointing down, it'd be pointing upwards. And so, okay, so we get, he gets the ultrasound out and he gets all lubed up and puts his hand in the ultrasound probe in there and he goes, oh, there it is right there. He's got a herniated disc. Slight herniation of a disc right there. And he said he has an abnormally small joint space there. The the joint space in front of it is abnormally large. And this one's a little bit small and it's it's squeezing on that disc right there. And uh, then I had to break and tell him, well, you want to know how I know that? And he, he was totally fine with that too. But like she was spot on. She said exactly where it was. And she didn't ask him to move. She didn't walk. She didn't walk him. He stood in the stall the whole time. He didn't take a step the whole time she was there. But that's not the crazy part. The craziest part is my friend in Australia who she then called, you know, the next week. And the the friend that belong, the horse that belongs to the friend of mine, you know, when I've ridden him before and when you're riding him, if you ask him to use his hind end, like start to rock back on his hocks and engage, sometimes he will just kick out with both hind feet like like something stung him, like he had a stinger or something or other, you know. So my friend Megan, she really wanted to to get that bit sorted out, find out what that was. And so she's talking to this um, animal communicator on the phone and all she's ta- all the animal communicator knows is that my friend's name's Megan and her horse's name's Tally. That's it. She doesn't even know what calorie is, what high, how high he is, what discipline she does with him. She doesn't ask any of those questions. She just wants your name, what's his name. And so when Megan gets to asking about does he hurt and she's going, yeah, when he hurts here and he hurts here and, and down his hind legs in his back of his hind legs, it feels like he's being stabbed with knives, kind of like, you know, imagine that would be something like sciatic pain in humans. And I've always thought this horse had something like a sciatic pain. But this friend of mine, Megan, I forgot to tell this, this is part of the story, she had, up to that point in time, she'd been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Like she's just weary all the time. She's got no energy. And the best they could come up with was chronic fatigue syndrome. So this animal communicator is talking about Tally and how, yeah, it hurts here and it hurts there. And here in his hind legs, it's like knives stabbing him. But he says he's not actually worried about his problems. He's worried about you and your sickness. And Megan's like, me and my sickness? What do you mean? And the lady says, well, he says you're tired all the time because you've been bitten by a tick. Sounds like Lyme disease to me. Well, Lyme disease 
And Megan had not been tested for Lyme disease because the medical community in Australia does not recognize the fact that Lyme disease is there. At least they didn't at the time. We, we, we don't have Lyme disease, so no one tests for it. But there are some rogue doctors who do believe Lyme disease is in Australia and, and they will get tests from overseas and they will test people for Lyme disease. So after that, Megan goes and gets tested for Lyme disease and guess what? She has Lyme disease. So she was diagnosed over the phone from an animal communicator in America who was communicating mentally with her horse, Megan's horse, who's in the backyard in Victoria, Australia. And the horse has told the lady through that much distance that Megan has got a sickness to where, she's, where she is tired all the time because she's been bitten by a tick. The lady says, well, it sounds like Lyme disease. Megan goes, gets tested, she's got Lyme disease. So there you go. If you did not believe in animal communicators before that, that's, and you know, that's not 15 hen. That's not like someone told someone told someone told someone. That's not Chinese whispers. The Albert story, I was standing right there and saw it. And the Megan story is basically secondhand for Megan. And I set the whole thing up. So, yeah, I think once you once you experience things like that, and, and, and that was before, and all that stuff happened before I kind of got woo-woo, but I think that having those experiences kind of open up your eyes to the possibility of there's things out there that we really can't explain that's, that's much bigger than we are. Which brings me to my last uh, subject we're going to talk about in this little bit of a woo-woo podcast and that is coincidences and I have found that I've, I've read somewhere when when you are on your path coincidences will start to happen and I had I think I've mentioned in an earlier podcast that about four years ago on the Saturday night of a clinic in Wisconsin I had a um what some people call a nervous breakdown some people some people call it a spiritual awakening but I had a thing happen and the week before that, I was at a horse expo in Madison, Wisconsin. And this, if you've listened to the very first podcast where I talked about where I first heard about Brene Brown for the first time, it was at this horse expo. And there was a girl that had come up to the booth who was a therapist. She, she's a subscriber to my video. She has horses, she's a, but she's a therapist, a human you know, psychotherapist. And she came up to the booth and she was one of the first people who I heard the words Brene Brown from. And uh, so at this horse expo, it's a bit, there's probably 10,000 people a day there. It's huge. If you're in Australia, it's like the Sydney Royal or the Melbourne Royal. I mean, it's a big area. I've never, I've never seen that many people at a horse expo anywhere in, in America. Like it's, it's pretty big. And so if you wanted to find someone in that horse expo, it'd be probably hard to find them. You know, like it's just, there's crowds and crowds anyway, everywhere. So I had to do a, a one of the demos I was doing one day had to do with horses that rear. And we, we had a horse that someone brought along that has a problem apparently it rares, but this horse was uh, such a problem, not a problem, but in such a bad way that I didn't even want to get the horse out of its stall because you, like Equitana in Australia, which is a big horse expo, when you take a horse out of its stall and you've got to get it to the arena, you have a uh, like an armed guard and they part the crowds and you know it's all very safe and everybody's wearing high vis and all that stuff in america you just get your horse out and you lead it through the crowd over to the arena you're going to use it on and i thought you know the, trying to lead this horse up the aisleway of the barn it would want to pull away from you and run off and i, I could just see people getting run over outside but also i could see that this horse is not ready for this environment so i i um i was going to go without a horse so i was just going to walk in there and, and talk and uh, Dan James everybody knows Dan James from Australia 
Dan was at the same expo and he said, well, do you want to borrow one of mine? And so his horse, uh, Apollo, I used him. So Apollo, you can ride him bareback and bridleless and Apollo also is very good at rearing up. So the, the demo I'm doing is about horses that rear. And of course, if you put rearing in, a, in the title of a demo at a horse expo, everybody shows up. So when I get over there for the, for the demo, I look in there and the place is packed. Like there's, they're packed to the rafters. There's as many people in there as you can fit in there. And so I, I go in and I say, so I, you know, this is supposed to be about horses that rear. And I told him the story about the horse that we were going to use, but I, I can't use him. I said, but never fear. Here's my friend, Dan James. So Dan James runs out and then he turns around, they open the gate and he cracks his whips and Apollo runs in, does this big old Liberty run in, runs up to Dan, stops and rears up. And then Dan has me rear him a little bit. And then Dan, he's, Dan's got to go and do another demo in the main arena, the big Coliseum thing. And so he leaves Apollo with me and I just hop on Apollo bareback and bridleless. And I just, I basically walk around and tell stories about why horses rear and different things that have happened over the years for about an hour and a half, I suppose. And so I had two friends from um, England staying with us at the time. Well, they'd, they'd come to a clinic out here at my place in California. Then they'd flown back to Wisconsin. They stayed with someone else. And then they were at the horse expo helping me. And one of them would stay in the booth when I did the demos and the other one would come to the demo and video. And this was Saturday afternoon. And so the one that was in the, normally stays in the booth, I said, just put a sign on the booth and says, Warwick's doing a demo back later. Come and watch the demo. And so both of these English girls were over there watching the demo. And when we got finished with the demo, I, uh, we go outside, we got, we're going to take Apollo back. But where do we take him back to? I don't even know where his stall is because Dan brought him to us. And... Dan is in the, the main Coliseum doing a uh, Liberty demonstration and he's got all his crew in there so I can't find any of his crew to put the horse away so we just go to the back of the Coliseum and there's a grassy area at the back so we just let Apollo graze on the grass and we sit there on the grass and hang out for probably half hour, 45 minutes till Dan gets done with his, his session. So then Dan comes out with his whole Liberty team and all the crew that's with him and so we're all hanging out there and People are coming up and taking pictures or whatever, and we hang there for quite a while too. So we've been at the demo. We did our demo for an hour and a half. We've been sitting on the grass for probably 45 minutes before Dan comes out. We're probably there for another half an hour or so hanging out there, and uh, one of the English girls says, well, should we go? We should go back to the booth, um, you know, in case anybody wants to ask you some questions or whatever. And it was Saturday afternoon about oh, 3 o'clock or something or other, and I said, you know what? Let's just go get a beer. If if we're meant to meet someone, we'll meet them. And so we go looking for the beer stand and there was a lot of them. Like I said, this place is huge and we find one. And so it's in a big building and it's just on the edge of this big building. So we get a couple of beers. Oh, well, I think one of the English girls goes and orders the beer. She's in line. She orders the beers and she hands me a beer. So I just walk outside and outside was all these tents set up where people were selling, you know, horse gear, whatever. And there was a, cowboy fellow there who uh was braiding plaiting you'd call it in australia uh leathers you know like reins and stuff like that which i used to do a bit of platin when i was a kid braiding as a kid and normally when you when you braid you have you start you know your stuff's hooked to something and you you braid towards yourself this guy was sitting on a chair and he had the thing underneath him and he was braiding away from himself which i'd never seen before and he's got a hat on so his head's down 
and so I can't see his face. But I walk up and I'm sipping this beer and I'm watching him plat, you know, and he's platting away there. And and I stand there for probably, you know, four or five minutes just watching him plat. And he, he finally slowly lifts his head up and he looks at me and goes, do a bit of braiding, do you? Obviously, anybody who sits there and watch someone braid for five minutes must have done it before, you know. And I said, oh, yeah, I've done a little bit. And so his head goes down and he keeps braiding away. And I stand there for a while. And then the two English girls come out and we're chatting. And finally he kind of looks up and we start chatting with this guy. And then he introduces us to his mum who is in the booth too. And really nice people. Um, and so we're having a good old chat with them. And while I'm talking to them, um, I someone walks up to the side of me like getting in on the conversation. And I turn and I look and it's the therapist girl who was at the booth that morning like, Who'd have thought yet I run into her in this huge big area with all these people? And she looks at me and she goes, so I see you've met my brother. So this guy that I happened to stand there and watch was her brother. And so that was pretty a big coincidence. But we stood there and I probably had a couple of beers while I was standing there talking to the therapist and the braider and the mum. And, and after a while... Another couple of people kind of show up, probably an hour later, show up like on the edge of the conversation too. And I turn and I look and it was a man and his wife and they'd been in the front row of my demo. And um, so I recognized their faces and they got, hey, how are you going? And I meet him, we have a good old chat and they're like, hey, we've got a couple of questions. And so they had a couple of horse training questions. So I chat with them for a while and they get their questions answered and then she says, well, we better go. Well, he said, we better go. One of them says, we better go. So we say our goodbyes and they turn, they go to walk off and she looks at him and she says, are you going to tell him? And he said, um, no, I suppose I will. So he turns around and he goes, hey, I've got to tell you something or other. After the demo, we went back to the booth because I wanted to ask you those questions and you weren't there. So then we walked around for a while and then we went back by the booth and you weren't there. And we were going to leave and I said to my wife, you know what? Let's go get a beer, and if we're meant to meet him, or we're meant to run into him, we will. And they happened to go to the same beer booth that I was standing outside, that I chose to stand outside of. And so, yeah, that whole weekend was just a bunch of coincidences like that, and there was even more than that, but that, those were a couple of them that just happened. And I'm sure you guys listening, you're probably nodding right now going, yeah, I know, but I've had that happen with me. And, um, you know, I just, I just think when you're when, – and like I said, it was, you know – two or three days after that, that I had my whatever the hell it was I had. And just uh, last year, recently, last year in New Zealand, I had kind of a similar set of of those coincidences happen. I was presenting at Equidae, which is a horse expo on the North Island. And while I was at it, and Tyler, my son Tyler was with me, and while we were there, I ran into a fellow I've met before. He's a, he's a New Zealander, he's a Maori, and he's, na- he's a horseman. His name's Tui Teka. And this guy is very uh, spiritual. He's very into, you know, because he's a, you know, he's a traditional Maori. He's, you know, he's a New Zealander, and he they have this this great connection to Earth itself. And like he, he when he talks about stuff, it's it's like whoa, it's kind of spine tingling. He's this he's just very spiritual guy. He's very very cool. And so I had a bit of a chat with him. Now I saw him a couple of days in a row. I ran into him, and you know, didn't spend a lot of time with him, but had a good little chat with him when i did and so after we got done with that horse expo on the you know it got it was friday saturday sunday 
Monday, Tyler and I were going to fly down to Queenstown, which is at the bottom of New Zealand, where it's all the fun stuff, you know, all the cool stuff happens down there. We're going to spend the week down there and then fly back up to Christchurch, which is on the South Island, and do a clinic on the weekend. So we, where the Horse Expo is, in, it's in a place called Hamilton, and so it has an airport, but it's not a very big airport. It's a tiny little airport right there, and we had a rental car. So we took the rental car back to the airport, dropped it off, and we get on a plane. We've got to fly to Queenstown, but we've got to fly from Hamilton to Wellington, which is on the bottom of the North Island, and get a different plane and then fly to Queenstown. And when we landed in Wellington, I'm walking through the airport and all of a sudden I said to Tyler, oh God, I've still got the keys to the bloody rental car. I forgot to hand them in. Because um, it's not one of those big airports where, the, you know, when you pull up, the guy comes over and checks the mileage and takes the keys and all that stuff. You're supposed to go inside and put them in the box. And I totally forgot. And I'm like, oh, what are we going to do? And so I texted Robin, who was Human America, and she get on the, you know, she's very good at organising all this sort of stuff. So she gets back to me five minutes later and she said, if you can't get the keys back to him today, it's a $300 replacement thing. I'm like, oh, how am I going to get the keys back to him today? And then I thought, I wonder if there's a flight leaving this airport going to Hamilton. So I look on the board and there's a Hamilton flight leaving in, you know, 45 minutes. And it says what gate it is. So I walk down to the gate and I'm looking around for, you know, a friendly face that I could say, hey, is there any chance you could take these keys back and drop them off? And there was a girl sitting there, and this is where judgment, you beat yourself up for judgment, you do sometimes. There was a girl, probably in her early 20s, sitting on a seat there, and she had like piercings and like dyed red hair, and you know, and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to ask her, you know, she's not my kind of person, sort of thing. And there were some coats on a seat next to her, and I was kind of looking at the, I was just kind of looking around, and this older gentleman was standing there, and he said, Oh, do you want me to move the coats? Do you want to sit down? And I said, No, actually, I don't want to move the coats i said are you getting on this flight to hamilton and he said yeah and i said here can you do me a huge favor i forgot to drop the car keys back can you take the car keys back and drop them in the box when you get back there and he goes oh yeah i can do that he says let me just write your name down so he gets a little notepad out and i said here i'll write it down for you so i wrote my name down and he goes here you go and you know i gave him the keys and thanked him very much and he didn't wouldn't take any money for it or whatever and off he went so tyler and i land in um get our flight down to Queenstown and we land in Queenstown and I get off the plane and I look at my phone and I've got a Facebook message from someone I don't know who who this person is. Okay, I don't I, rec- I don't recognize the name and I open the message and it's a message and it says oh, I missed you in the airport in uh, Wellington. I missed you in the airport in Wellington. I'm a huge fan. I watch all your videos on YouTube. You gave your car keys to my dad. And it was the girl with the piercings and the red hair that I just totally ignored because I thought, no, she's not my kind of person sort of thing. And, as, and she said, I watch all your videos and I'm a huge fan. I'm like, right. Then I was like, yeah, jerk. You know, that's, that's judgment for you. So we get to um, – so that was a huge coincidence that day. Out of all the people in the airport, the, the, the person I give the keys to is the father of a girl who follows what I do. And she didn't look horsey at all. That's probably the, the – the, the thing you know like she didn't look like she was horsey at all so obviously i wouldn't think she'd be following my stuff so we get down to queenstown we it's too early to check into the hotel i think it's midday or something like this so we park the car and we go for a bit of a walk and tyler and i were going to bungee jump at some point in time during our week there and there is a place in queenstown that it's an outlet for all the the touristy stuff you can go there you can buy the you know you can buy the plane rides you can buy the bungee jumping you can buy the heli skiing trips whatever 
I said to Tyler, let's jump, let's go in here and we, there's a there's a bridge that we wanted to bungee jump off there into this canyon. It's called a uh, starts with a K. I can't remember the name of it. And that's the bungee jump we wanted to do. I said, let's just go see what availability they got this week. So we walk in there and I said, okay, what availability you got? And they said, oh, how about three o'clock today? <laughs> okay, let's do it. So we pay for it. So we don't really have time to go and check in. And so we're going to go for a little walk. And we have walked past some tattoo places in Queenstown while we've been walking around. And I, I don't know why, but I didn't give it the slightest bit of thought about getting another tattoo because I've got a few. And we went for a bit of a walk just to kill some time. We walked past this tattoo place. I don't know what it was, but I just get drawn to go into it. Like, let's go in here and see about a tattoo. So I go in and there's a there's a girl behind the desk and there's in the back there, there's seven tattoo tables. Or there's, actually, there's eight tattoo tables. Six of them have people on them working, getting worked on. And there's one guy sitting at the seventh one and he's on a computer doing something or other. And I said to the girl, hey, you got any, I just want to see if there's time this week to get, uh, maybe get a tattoo. And she goes, well, what are you thinking? And I kind of tell her what I was thinking. She goes, well, there's a guy over here free right now. He could do some stuff now. I said, oh, I don't have time to do it now. I've got to go bungee jump here in an hour or so. And she said, no, well, he could just do a preliminary sketch. I'm like, okay. So I go back to the table and she introduced me to this guy. And he's a great big Maori guy, you know. And it was, I wanted something on my calf. And so he says, jump up here, bro. So I get up on the table and he's down there freehand drawing this tattoo on my calf. And he goes, he said, uh, so bro, what, what you doing in New Zealand? And I said, oh, you know, because when people ask me, what do you do? It's usually it's this long involved story about trying to tell them what exactly I do because it's not exactly normal. What are you doing here in New Zealand, bro? And I said, oh, well, I, I train horses. And actually I was presenting at a horse expo in on the North Island. And my son and I have just come down here to mess around for a week and then I've got to do a clinic in, in Christchurch on the weekend and he goes, oh, you're into horses, bro. He goes, you know Tui Teka? And I said, yeah, no, I was talking two days ago. He goes, that's my cousin, bro. And it's like out of, I'd walked past a lot of tattoo parlors, a number of tattoo parlors that afternoon in Queenstown, didn't even think about going into them. The one I do think of going into, the one person who's free is the cousin of a fellow I was talking to on the North Island two days before. And so it's just... You know, you just, and I'm sure, like I said, you guys listening are probably nodding like, yeah, I've had that happen to me. But I I really believe that it seems to happen more and more and more like these coincidences that you just couldn't dream up. Like there's four and a half million people in New Zealand and I'm there's two islands and I'm on one island and the fellow who's out of all the people, all the tattoo artists in Queensland I've chosen to do this tattoo on my leg is the cousin of a fellow I was talking to on the North Island two days before. I mean, how do you figure that out? And so, um, yeah, and then when we, we did the clinic on the weekend and then Tyler and I were in Auckland Airport about to come home and I was buying some, I think Tyler was buying some merino undergarments for our Mongolia trip and I was in the store next door buying some greenstone, like some jade stuff. And they called our flight and I said, Tyler, we've got to go, we've got to go. He goes, oh, just a minute, just a minute. And so we're kind of, you know, and they called our flight a couple of times and then we're, we're going to head up, you know, go up the concourse and run up to the gate. And he goes, oh, look, sunglass hut, I just want to look in here. And I'm like, we didn't have time to look in the sunglass hut. And he's no one looking here, I just a pair of glasses I want to show you. So we go in there and he shows me the glass, I'm like, let's go. So we run over to the escalator and we get on the escalator and we're going up, these, these two escalators side by side and we're going, Tyler's on one, I'm on the other. We're going up the escalator, and halfway up the escalator, Tyler turns around, he looks down, and he goes, holy cow. 
And I turn around and behind me on the escalator and behind him on the escalator was a couple who, they're friends of ours, they're the parents of Tyler's first serious girlfriend. And they're on the escalator right behind us. And he's a, uh, uh, he's a, like a wealthy executive in the Silicon Valley area here. And he, when he got, when they got on the plane, they turned left and went up to be, uh, to first class and we went down to cattle class. So there's no way we would have even seen them because we, you know, we wouldn't have even come across them if Tyler hadn't have said, oh, hang on, I just want to look at this pair of sunglasses. And yeah, Dave and Gretchen, their name, and we hadn't seen him for several years. And I was like, how, how does that happen? But so yeah, that was, that that whole New Zealand trip was full of a lot of coincidences, and I'm sure, you, like I said, you guys have have had that. But I, I really, you know, this whole this whole podcast has been about the woo woo stuff, the stuff you can't explain, the stuff that is uh, it, it just if you've had these things happen to you, it really resonates that we're all connected by something that's whatever it is. It's much bigger than us, and. Uh, you know, if you if you're not into manifesting, um, please try it. I think it's you know I, when you get around a lot of successful people, like people who you know, all sorts of successful people, and you really start talking to them, they all do it. And it's not something I grew up with. It's not something that um, you know people from rural Australia, where I'm from, do. It sounds like it's kind of wacky, but you know, it's served me very well. And like I said, every time I meet someone really really successful at what they do a lot of times they'll talk about their mindset and that belief in belief in positive things uh is a huge part of it and then there's the animal communicator part to where you know that's that's just people who can tap into stuff that we can't see and can't prove but it's there and then the coincidences that's just more of the same stuff but anyway i'm rambling now but this stuff really excites me and you know this is the journey on podcast and some of this woo-woo stuff is is the stuff that I have come into contact on my journey and it seems like the more I'm on this journey, the more uh, more normal that stuff kind of becomes and it just becomes a part of your everyday life and you almost ex- not expect it to happen as in take it for granted but just you're no longer amazed and you just kind of go, yeah, that's, that's, that's how it works. So anyway, I hope you got some, uh, some stuff out of those stories. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, the Journey On podcast and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.